Hello everybody, I'm Anthony Avila. And I'm Andrea Murciano, and welcome to Bridging the Gap. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are really happy to introduce to you guys, Dr. Grega. We think she will have a lot to say about food insecurity, lifestyle medicine, and really what shifted her mindset from becoming a primary care doctor to more of a community figure and her outreach within Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. So thank you for tuning in again, and we were really excited to introduce to you Dr. Grega. It's interesting because I, I, when I was younger, I didn't really want to be a doctor. There's no doctors in my family, so and, and no nurses, so we don't really have a lot of healthcare experience in my family before me going to medical school. So of course, my parents were a little surprised being teachers and accountants and things like that. They're like, you want to be a doctor? And I really think that I wasn't so much that I wanted to be a doctor as much as I wanted to be a healer. Like I really wanted to be a part of my community. I, I actually say that I wanted to be a shaman, but there are no shaman jobs like at this, uh, this <laughs> yeah, time in our, in our history. <laughs> so I thought that being a family doctor was the closest thing to being a modern day shaman so that you actually had this tribe of people all the way from birth till, till elderly age and um, being able to take care of them through that whole lifespan and being a part of the community that you serve. So when I went into medicine, it seemed like primary care was the, the right place for the right fit for somebody like me. And primary care is awesome. I would definitely recommend it for the, that kind of relationship aspect with your patients. But I began to really see that the type of primary care that I trained in, um, and I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is an awesome medical school, and I met great people there and awesome doctors, a whole lot of really good research and clinical knowledge. I gained a lot of good like facts and ways to, to handle patients if they were already having problems. So like if they already were in congestive heart failure or if they already had a heart attack or a stroke or cancer. But the problem is, is a lot of times what we're trying to really do is keep them from getting the high blood pressure or the high cholesterol or the, or the cancer. And that's not really so much a focus of our current medical system. Like our current medical system is really good at saying, oh, you have high blood pressure. Okay, I've got all these different medications to treat you with. But we don't have, we're not very good at saying, oh, you have high blood pressure. Why do you have high blood pressure? Like what, what is going on in your life? What are your habits? What are you eating? You know, what's your exercise, your stress, any toxic substances, you know, like tobacco, things like that. As far as prevention and as far as treating and reversing disease with lifestyle choices, that's not really the focus of most medical training. It's starting to shift, which is great. So by the time you guys get there, hopefully it will shift enough so that um, you are learning more of those techniques. But that's what lifestyle medicine is about. So when I first went through medical school and residency, I became board certified in something called family medicine. And I, I've been a family doc ever since. But I'm now also board certified in something called lifestyle medicine, which is all about preventing, but also treating and reversing disease using a healthy whole food plant-based diet, regular exercise, uh, adequate sleep, uh, supportive social connections, stress management, and avoidance of risky substances. And we know from research that for people that are just following four simple lifestyle habits or can claim these like four simple lifestyle characteristics, and I say simple, but not easy. So simple, <laughs> but not necessarily easy to do in our society. If you can say yes to all four of those, so no smoking, BMI is less than obese, getting at least 30 minutes of exercise a day, and you're following what I would call a plant slant or a plant forward type of a diet they had a decrease of 78% in any chronic disease. So those patients compared to ones who couldn't say yes to any of those four, if you could say yes to all four, you're decreasing your risk of any chronic disease, whether it's hypertension, diabetes, cancer, heart disease by 80%. Well, there is absolutely no pill that we have in our pharmaceutical armamentarium that can decrease your risk of chronic disease by 80%. Because if there was, that company would be like a multi-gazillionaire and we would be prescribing it to everybody by the time they turn 30. We'd be like, here's your, <laughs> you know, here's your uh, anti-chronic disease pill. But it turns out it doesn't work with medication. It's lifestyle that makes those, those differences. And so for me as a, as a doctor who really wanted to be a shaman, my goal is not to have a whole bunch of patients that have controlled blood pressure on, on medicine and controlled diabetes on medicine. It's to get people healthy so that they don't need the medication if possible and that they don't have high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, all that good stuff. Do you happen to remember what study that was? Maybe we could actually check oh, that out. Oh, off the top of my head. It's, the title is 
Um, something like living well is the best revenge, but I'd have to send you the, the link. I have it because it's, I use it as one of my uh, presentation slides a lot. So I have the link. It was actually a European study and they followed uh, over 20,000 people. I think it was in Germany. Percentage of Americans can say yes to all four. And this is from NHANES data, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data. Honestly, I want to say 50, but I know that's not the answer. I want to say probably like a third, like 30%. That would be awesome, but we are not that good. So, yeah. So what do you think, Anthony? You have a guess? I mean, I was going to say like 25, 30%, but now that you say that, I lost a lot of hope. So maybe like 15%? (laughs) 2.7%. Wow. (laughs) So less than 3% of our country of adults can say that they hit all four. So it's really not surprising to see that, you know, heart disease is our number one killer in the United States. Over 600,000 people a year, which is like one person every minute, dies of heart disease. And then we, diabetes is in the top 10, uh, stroke is in the top 10. So all of these things have to do with our lifestyle habits. And if only 2.7% of us are are, uh, having those lifestyle habits that lead to a decreased risk of chronic disease, you can see why our healthcare system is costing this country so much money and why people are um, unfortunately starting to see, it's, it's almost like the life expectancy in our country has plateaued and we're starting to actually go down. Some of that has to do with, with things that don't have to do with um, heart disease, but in a way we've kind of reached the limit of what we can do with medications and um, surgeries and procedures. There might be a little bit more room there, but in general, we probably can't medicate ourselves out of this chronic disease epidemic. And so we have to start looking at other things that would be more effective, but also a lot less expensive to help our population live healthier lives. Yeah, so do you happen to remember maybe when, um, when you were a primary care doctor and that you were, you were a board certified family doctor, do you happen to remember like an, an instant where you shifted or like you kind of shifted your mindset and you're like, okay, this doesn't, necessarily feel right like I, I need to do a like, change I need to like something like mm-hmm. foundation was there a moment like that for you I think you- it was mostly the kids because I would be seeing um for their well child visits so many kids year after year getting worse and I think I had a specific um person a specific child who I a- after that appointment I got in touch with my administrators and said like where do I refer these people to because these kids, because they don't have diabetes yet, they don't have high blood pressure yet, but I'm taking care of their parents as well. And I know that their parents have high blood pressure, high cholesterol and diabetes. And I feel like these kids are headed in the same direction. So what can we do to try to kind of like change the trajectory? And the, my administrators at that hospital at the time, and it's not that they were bad people. They just, they basically said, there's no place to refer them. And I, I said, well, why not? And they said, because they don't have a billable diagnosis yet. You're not sick yet. So I said, well, can I send them to a nutritionist? And they were like, nope, because there's, they you can't bill for it. And, and I said, okay, well, how about if I start seeing them more frequently, like in group visits and stuff? And they were like, nope, because not billable for you either. Now, some of that has changed since that time, because that would have been in the very early 2000s. And some of the billing things have changed as, uh, as our system has learned that we're going to need to be able to affect these diseases, not just with medications and that uh, there's different billing codes that we didn't have then. But it really hit me that I was like, so you're basically saying I have to wait till these kids get sick for me to help them get better. And that was what made me kind of go outside of the medical system. Even though I kept practicing as a doctor, I, I really decreased my hours in my traditional primary care and started to create Kellen Foundation so that we, and what we do with Kellen is really more out in the streets. It's out in the communities. So like the lifestyle medicine, even lifestyle medicine. Um, and that's kind of where Kellen Foundation came into being was my frustration as a primary care doctor, seeing my patients in my little 15 minute visits that I had was not enough to really get into that type of lifestyle counseling. And so, yes, I could increase their blood pressure medicine, or yes, I could uh, increase their diabetes medicine, send them for tests, send them for procedures, but I wasn't really getting to the crux of the problem. And I really saw that uh, most acutely with kids. So I graduated from medical school back in the 90s, so it was a while ago. <laughs> and we have seen a big difference in um, kids over the course of my medical career. 
or really, really over the course of my lifetime, because I was born in 1971. So I actually like kind of grew up through this age where kids started to have this obesity epidemic. And as a doc, I had a lot of kids in my practice that uh, were struggling with weight issues and with cardiovascular fitness. Like they, they couldn't even run around a gym without getting out of breath. And I would talk to them during their well child visits to say like eat less, um, eat less processed food, eat less or drink less sweetened beverages, eat more fruits and vegetables, get more exercise. But if you only see somebody once a year for their well child visit, like that's, yeah, it doesn't really, it doesn't really sink in. So I had a lot of these kids that were getting worse and worse over the years as I got to see them uh, grow up. And I wanted to do something to try to change that trajectory. And that was where Kellen Foundation started, was trying to create the types of programs that I wished as a doctor I could refer my patients to. And those are more intensive kind of lifestyle change programs where you spend more time with people. Group visits are great because you get the support of a whole group of people saying, oh, this is what I'm doing. Oh, hey, this is how I'm you know, making breakfast easier or how I'm doing uh, different things. This is what I do with zucchini when there's like tons of zucchini out there. Um, but also doing like group exercise things together and goal setting. And that's how Kellen started. So that was our first pillar and still is our first pillar, which is Kellen Lifestyle Medicine. We used to just call it Kellen Health because lifestyle medicine wasn't really a term uh, back in the early 2000s. But it's we now call it Kellen Lifestyle Medicine. And that has to do with intensive therapeutic lifestyle change programs for patients, families, kids, people out in the community, like there's different versions of how we do it, depending on, on who we're doing it with. But the, the whole, the, the overarching theme is help people change their behaviors so that they can end up with um, a healthier lifestyle and as a healthier lifestyle, then have less disease. So I'll give you one example for a patient who's currently in our, one of our programs. She's lost 15 pounds since January. So even in the midst of all this crazy COVID epidemic, yeah. And her cholesterol dropped 40 points. So, I mean, that's a great outcome. Now, not everybody gets that. You know, not everybody depends on how much you engage and how much you change your life and some of its genetics. But it shows the potential of, the, unfortunately, the standard American diet and the standard American lifestyle is really kind of set up to make us sick over the long term. And if we live that lifestyle that everybody else in America is living, why would we be surprised that we end up with the standard American diseases at the end of, you know, like once we hit middle age, like, which is hypertension and high cholesterol, heart disease, diabetes, it's just kind of makes sense, you know, cause that's what the way we're living. So uh, the choices that we make, our behavioral choices are some of the most powerful things that we can do to stay healthy, but that's not common in America. And that's part of what we wanted to do with Kellen Foundation is one, let people know, hey, you don't have to have diabetes. You don't have to have high blood pressure. doesn't matter if your parents had diabetes. You don't have to have diabetes. You know, like you can change your, your lifestyle to, for the most part, and when I say diabetes, I mean type 2 diabetes. Like type 1 diabetes is different. That's, that's a, that is something that happens earlier and is not as related to your weight or the food choices. But type 2 diabetes is the, um, the majority of the cases in our country. And those can be really affected by all these lifestyle choices. So Kellen uh, Lifestyle Medicine is all about those sort of interventions, but we also do a lot of educational stuff. So we have the Lehigh Valley Lifestyle Medicine Symposium, which I think I told you about uh, previously. Yeah. And that's all about bringing doctors and nurses, but also community members together to talk about how can we kind of implement these sorts of things in our community. Um, and we also do Lehigh Valley Veg Stock, which is one of our big, huge uh, festivals. I'm fingers crossed we can do it this year, you know, <laughs> with all the things that are going on uh, with COVID. But that has to do with music and lifestyle medicine lectures, but also a celebration of all sorts of different like plant-based foods and exercise classes, yoga, things like that. So last year we had over 4,000 people actually come to, to Veg Stock. And it's, it's a, a way to celebrate that having a healthy lifestyle doesn't mean that you have to not do the fun things or eat the fun thing. You know, it's not like, Oh, I have to eat this broccoli. So it'll make me better, like healthier. It's, it's actually really delicious or the types of food that you can make is really awesome. And you feel better with exercise anyway, and all those sorts of things. So that is our Kellen. What we do with Kellen is really more out in the streets. It's out in the communities. So like the lifestyle medicine, even lifestyle medicine, um, 
interventions like the Kellen Lifestyle Medicine stuff is mostly out in community places. So we are doing the current one we were doing in a school district for employees. Uh, we often will do it at our location in, um, at, which is not in a hospital. It's more of like a wellness center and, and has exercise classes and things there. So <clears throat> I think what has happened as I've sort of evolved in my thinking of this is that you really kind of have to go be where the people are, like where they live, where they work, where they play. So that's why the schools are so important. That's why the mobile market's so important and the cooking classes are so important because traditional healthcare is necessary, but it's not enough. So you have to go and actually be where the people are and become a part of their lives. So one of the aspects mm -hmm. in the health disparities course is the issue, well, not an issue, um, mm -hmm. is your zip code kind of determines your life expectancy. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, that's something that, you know, as a pre-medical student, I would have, you know, I wouldn't have thought, you know, it's just a zip code, it's just where you live, but it turns out, you know, it determines your life. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned, you know, those four style habits, but if there, you know, is there, like, what was the number one challenge you saw, like, in the community, if you could name one? I think it's our habits, like our social norms, our culture. So there's places in the world called the blue zones that you may have heard of that are some of the, in these blue zones, the, the whole population live healthier, longer, more vital, active lives than we do in the rest of the world. And so there's one in, um, there's a blue zone in Sardinia, there's a blue zone in Ikaria, Greece, there's one in Okinawa. So there's a couple different blue zones across the world. And in those uh, places, researchers went to go see like, why is it that they have the highest number of centenarians on the planet? Like, why is that? And they, I think they were really kind of looking for something that was maybe in the water or in the food or like something that could be turned into a supplement or some way to sort of like spread it through the world. But it turns out it's really the cultural lifestyle of those places. So in all of those places, people move naturally throughout the day. They don't go to the gym and get on the treadmill for 30 minutes and then go sit in their office for the rest of the day. Like they are always moving just because that's, most of these places are, are very traditional societies that don't have a whole lot of the, the transportation things and they, they walk everywhere. So they move naturally throughout the day. They have a predominantly uh, plant-based diet. So it doesn't mean that they don't have meat and dairy at all, but they grow a lot of their own food. They cook a lot of their own food. It's not processed, doesn't have a lot of the salts and the chemicals and the things that we do. And meat and dairy is just a very, very small part of their diet. The majority of their diet is kind of like that study that we were talking about being fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds. And they also have a real sense of social connection. Like they're part of a community where they feel like they're supported and that really helps with stress. And it also helps with just the general feeling of having a purpose. So in those areas of the blue zones, the whole society, all the cultural rhythms are set up to nourish health as opposed to increase risk of disease. Here in the United States, we have flipped that on its head so that we eat mostly, I believe it's about 55% of our diet is processed foods. And then like another 25% of it is meat and dairy and things like that. So we have such a small percentage I believe one of the most recent um, studies looked at it that said about 12% of what we eat is plant foods, like fruits and vegetables. That's not processed into a chip or a cracker or something. So if we are only eating 12% of fruits and vegetables and we don't really have a lot of exercise during our day, and I shouldn't say exercise, physical activity, movement. So we don't have a lot of that during our day. There's a lot of stress in our society. Uh, we often don't feel that 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 feeling of like social connection or support. And we don't usually get enough, enough sleep. That's a whole nother issue in the United States. So it's like our cultural norms, what everybody else around us is doing is encouraging us to do those same things. So for example, in the um, areas of food insecurity and the zip code stuff you were talking about, one of the big things that Kellen is very, very passionately interested in is uh, food access, healthy food access and food insecurity. So we have a Eat Real Food mobile market, which is a 24-foot trailer that goes into these neighborhoods of food insecurity here in the Lehigh Valley. And we are there as their kind of healthy mobile grocery store on wheels. So we're there every week, the same time throughout the growing season. So it's like a 22-week season. 
and we park in these neighborhoods for two to three hours. The kids know us from the schools, you know, the parents know us from the cooking classes or from the school gardens or working together with the PTA or things like that. So we're already kind of a trusted presence in the neighborhood. And then we've got the grocery store right there. So we've got local uh, produce as much as possible, but we also bring things in from other areas. Like for example, we can't grow oranges in the Lehigh Valley. So like we're gonna get oranges and avocados and things from other places, but as much as possible, we wanna support our local farms. And uh, we also have like healthy prepared foods like breads or chili or you know things that are, are not really too processed, but cooked so they're easier meals. And people then can come to that grocery store, well, that trailer basically, and get um, their fruits, their vegetables, their bread, some of their other staples. We can do things like oatmeal and brown rice, stuff like that. And they can use their EBT card. So that's uh, the SNAP benefits. And we also have the double SNAP benefit program, which is here in the Lehigh Valley called Lehigh Valley Fresh Food Bucks. And that is for people that have uh, an EBT or a SNAP card they get up to $10 of matching local produce for every well, like dollar to dollar. So if they spend up to $10 on whatever they want, you know, it could be, it could be mangoes, it could be whatever, or it could be, it could be honey. They can, they can spend it on anything, but then they get a $10 match for local fruits and vegetables every day. So awesome. that ends up really helping with the cost as well as with the access piece. And they can also use things like um, cash credit debit, but we also have um, something called a fruit and vegetable prescription program. So I don't know if you guys have had seen anything like that down where you are, but that's where local doctors will prescribe fruits and vegetables for their patients. And then they give them a voucher and the voucher is to be used on the mobile market. And then the, uh, whether it's like 10 bucks or 20 bucks, the patients can come and get that amount of produce for free, which is pretty cool. I love that. I've never even heard of that. Oh yeah, it's a really great way to try to um, encourage patients to eat more fruits and vegetables because we write them prescriptions for medicine all the time, right? 100%. So yeah, so this way we're writing them prescriptions for some healthy food and that's really kind of showing in a way it's symbolizing how important that is that we think it's just as important as giving them their medication prescription. I think the closest things we have to that, I mean, and this is not even patient-based, it's like, you know, we have um, local farms, at least in Gainesville, who you know, we'll do, they'll have like uh, doctors, you know, uh, order, I guess like food, like, you know, fruits and vegetable packages. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the closest we have. Like, you know, there's no, there's no, doctors don't prescribe, at least from what I've heard, like prescribe um, mm -hmm. patients, you know, to go buy fruits and vegetables. But I think that's, that's honestly an amazing program. It would be a great thing if our country starts to move in that direction. And for people that have chronic diseases, that they would cover things like lettuce or kale in the same way that they cover things like a statin drug or an insulin drug, you know? Yeah, and those are so much more expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when we are out with the mobile market, we're there all season. So we build relationships with those with the, our clients. We hand out recipes in English and Spanish. We do food sampling. Um, we do, so like they actually get to taste some of the fruits and vegetables that are on the market and uh, they come in back and they tell us how their, their uh, food was from the week before. So it becomes more of a social thing as well. So it's not just about health. It's also about relationships and it's about like in the, do you guys remember this is a long time ago, but there used to be a TV show called Cheers where like Norm would walk into the bar and everybody be like, Norm because everybody knew him and it was like a feeling that it was the place that everybody knows your name well, that's kind of how we are with the mobile market you know like we know our people so I feel like that's part of why they come every week too even though they're coming to get their food but it's also a place where they feel comfortable and that they know that there's people there that are going to be friendly and you know talk and stuff like that yeah that really that really brings in the social aspect of of living a healthy lifestyle and lifestyle medicine in general but I, I really like to focus on the mobile market and just ask, and you were mentioning that the future of the healthcare system in the United States should start progressing towards something like that. We're prescribing mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables. So besides the fact that, like Andrea mentioned, that these drugs do cost more money and that in reality, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, hospitals in general, just make money off of this. Why else isn't the current healthcare system shifting towards a more lifestyle medicine focused system in general? 
I think it has a lot to do with our payment models. So if we, cause right now we're still pretty much in a fee for service payment model, which means you have something wrong with you. So you go to your doctor and you, the doctor gets paid or the hospital gets paid for that instance of care of seeing you, whether it's in the office with a visit or if it's in the ER or if it's a surgery, but it's like, we are not getting paid to keep people healthy. Like if people are healthy, there's the doctors and the hospitals and especially the insurance companies or not the insurance companies, I'm sorry, the pharmaceutical companies aren't getting paid for that. So if you look at it more from a population health standpoint and you say, hey, what would we do to save money and keep people healthy from a population? Now lifestyle medicine approaches make a lot of sense because it's a lot cheaper for people to be off of their expensive medications and not be visiting the hospital as much and all that. But currently there's not funding mechanisms or billing mechanisms to cover things like that. So for example, the fruit and vegetable prescription vouchers, that's not billed through insurance. That's philanthropic support of um, people giving money towards that program to cover it. So it's not like we can say, oh, so for me as a doctor, I can write a prescription for an antihypertensive medicine and that'll get paid for for a patient. But if I write a prescription for $20 of fruits and vegetables that week, that will not get paid for. So we have to always be fundraising to get enough money to cover that program. So I think that's like just one example. But when you look at the whole system, these are different approaches to health as well. So things like group visits and seeing people more frequently is necessary for behavioral change, which is not the same as somebody coming in and you're like, oh, okay, you need to have a higher blood pressure medicine, write the script. Okay, I'll see you in six weeks. Like that doesn't work as well for a somebody who's in the midst of trying to change their diet or like get ready to, or, or try and maintain an exercise program or change their sleep habits or manage their stress. Like whatever it is that you're going to be focusing on with that patient, it requires a reshifting around of our system so that interacting with people is considered as valuable as writing them a script or sending them for a lab test or doing a procedure on them. Because as we've seen now with the COVID um, pandemic, hospitals are losing a ton of money, not because they're not taking care of patients, they are, but they're not doing hip replacements and knee replacements and cataract surgeries and all those elective things that are some of the more uh, lucrative things for a hospital to do. It's not really cost effective for somebody like me to be hanging out with and having a two hour visit with you know, five people. <laughs> <laughs> because that's just not how our system is set up. It's not really cost effective for a hospital system or a insurance company or anybody right now to pay for people's food because they don't get any any benefit out of the fact that um, other than you know goodwill and it's a good thing, but they don't get any financial benefit out of the fact that then patients maybe don't have to be on a medication. Like who saves money about that? So if we have, so we have to shift our system as a society to paying for keeping people healthy or getting, returning people to health if they're already sick, as opposed to paying more money for people to be um, sick and being maintained with medications or things like that. Yeah. So it seems like it's just a continuous kind of a feed into itself cycle. Yes. But your generation can change it by voting and like just saying this entire system has to change because it does not work. And I'm, I am hoping that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic for as terrible as it is and as really damaging as it is, will shake up this current system because it, it has also shown that we really need a better public health infrastructure. And that's another thing that doesn't get funded very much in this country is public health. Public health is necessary in prevention, but it's also necessary in these sorts of things like surveillance when something like COVID-19 happens. And those types of preventive services, whether it's primary care, whether it's public health, whether it's lifestyle medicine, are not currently well-financed in our system. But they are the pieces that can really make a huge difference in both the improvement of health, the prevention of really bad um, outcomes, as far as like amputations for diabetics or you know heart, heart attacks for people, or even things like hip fracture, like that's another one. So getting people to be, well, as they're getting older, keeping good balance and proprioception through regular physical activity and through 
uh, not becoming deconditioned nutritionally so that they're still having fruits and vegetables and that they're eating whole grains. All of those things would save the system money in the long run, but who is the system right now? Like who's the payers? Who's, who gets money from, um, for example, a hip replacement? We have to like rethink all of this as a society and be able to make it that it is that there's money available to keep people healthy or to return them to health. Right now, money's available if people are sick. Yeah, and you're gonna, you made a good point, and you mentioned it actually a lot about the social aspect and how just social interaction can provide so much, it can be so beneficial to, towards your health. Um, but you also mentioned or, uh, several times how it is much more inexpensive to live a healthier lifestyle and just eat these healthier foods rather than paying for the medications, which in, instead would be the, the medication, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But what would you say to somebody that says, oh, like eating healthy is quite expensive and, and somebody that maybe doesn't make that much money can't really afford that and they don't have access to something like the Callan Foundation Mobile Market, what would you say to them? I would say that that is a very good point and a lot of people do feel that way, that eating healthy is uh, too expensive. It's it's easier, it's cheaper to eat unhealthy food. But I would say that that's actually in a way a myth, but it means that you need to actually cook the food yourself. So that's the hardest part. So for example, if you are, it's, it's more of a convenience or a time factor because it's way easier to go get, you know, some very cheap fast food that is not really nutritionally beneficial, but tastes good because it's very salty and fatty or sugary and is not all that expensive. That is more convenient and it is cheap. However, eating fruits and vegetables or eating a healthy diet is possible on a very, very low budget if you are able to do the cooking yourself and it depends on what you choose. So things like large bags of brown rice or dried lentils or oat, big things of oatmeal, like that's a really cheap food. It's a lot cheaper than getting chicken breast or than getting even, you know, ground hamburger. So those are very cheap beans, like canned beans or dried beans, even more so dried beans that you cook yourself and, and then maybe freeze some of them. So you don't have to always be cooking those beans. That's a lot cheaper than some of the other protein sources out there. Soda is ridiculously expensive when you look at it compared to things like water, you know, or compared to water with a little bit of lemon in it. Um, chips, like if you get a bag of chips, corn chips, potato chips, anything like that. That's a couple, you know, it's like three bucks or four bucks, but you could get yourself easily a bag of like the little apples and get oranges. There is definitely fruit that's expensive. Berries are expensive, like fresh berries are expensive. But frozen berries aren't that bad if you get them in a frozen bag and frozen vegetables aren't that bag, bad. So like as far as expensive, so like a, a bag of frozen spinach or a bag of frozen peas or a bag of frozen corn, that's still very nutritionally good for you and is much less expensive. So we at Kellen Foundation are often doing plant-based meals out for the community for cooking demonstrations and we keep our ingredient costs to about $2.50 a serving or below. So that's at least as good as, a, as going to a fast food place. And it's better than a lot of people who, when you think about ordering something like from, a, from an actual restaurant. But the key is you have to cook it yourself. And um, batch cooking is a great way to make this more convenient and also less expensive. And what batch cooking is, is you make up a big batch of different ingredients sometime during the week when you have a little bit more time to cook. So for example, cook up a big batch of brown rice, um, a bunch of beans, saute up a lot of maybe onions and peppers and garlic and have that together. And um, then you use those things in different recipes throughout the week so that maybe you have burritos one night and then maybe you have a chili the other night and maybe you make a stir fry and you throw it over the rice another night. So by doing all of that, you don't spend that much money. And you know, it's interesting with the, the COVID-19, we definitely in my family were eating out a lot more than we should have been. And we probably were, you know, making as good of choices as we could because we're, we're all, um, I wouldn't be able to say that eating out is whole food plant-based, but we're plant-based, you know, so we're, we're definitely, and we at home try to cook more of that whole food plant-based. But if you are looking for healthy food that you are then going to be either getting, for example, organic fresh berries in January or something, that's gonna be really expensive. So you have to have those tricks of, oh, you know what else is really cheap? Potatoes. Like 
sweet potatoes, potatoes, beans. Um, greens are pretty cheap too, like I said, frozen. But if you start looking through the, um, the grocery store, bananas are really cheap. You can find a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains that are very inexpensive. And then you just need to get some spices and some other things to make it a little bit more interesting when you eat it. So that's education. And that's a key thing for patients that I don't think our healthcare system currently provides enough of is if somebody says, hey, I don't have enough money to eat healthy, well, then what's the next step? In my mind, in a perfect world, the next step is, okay, I understand why you feel that way. Here, let's sign you up for this six-week cooking class where you will learn to cook with these ingredients on a budget and then that you actually get those practical skills. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that the public is not being educated. But what is quite ironic, I believe, from what I've heard, is that a lot of medical students, and we're talking about medical students because, well, first of all, you are a medical doctor and we are interested in going into the medical field but a lot of other health professionals do not really get educated on nutrition, which is a dilemma in itself. And I think that that needs to change just like the system. But I'd really like to ask why isn't the Kellen foundation and the mobile market or why not? Why isn't it? But what do you think needs to happen for that type of service to be replicated more around the United States to provide these quality foods to populations that do not really have access if it wasn't for having a market. Mm -hmm. So I think the, um, there's a couple pieces to making this work and it is different in every community, but the type of pieces are the same. The approach might be different in every community because every neighborhood is a different place. And that's why we, we talk so much about our healthy neighborhood immersion strategy. So our healthy neighborhood immersion strategy is kind of wrapping a neighborhood in lots of different healthy lifestyle services to try to shift those social norms like we were talking about in the blue zones, try to make the community cultural rhythms supportive of a healthy lifestyle. So we usually like to start in the schools, so in elementary schools, because that's usually a hub of a community. So making relationships, and relationships is the key thing for helping behavioral change as well as for helping to build a, a new social norm for a community. So going into the elementary schools and doing the programming in, we do it in third, fourth, and fifth grade. Different communities may choose to do it differently, but we do in-classroom programming as well as the garden as a classroom, which is the school gardening outside. And that's a great way to start getting people thinking about healthy food, trying healthy food, talking about healthy food, and um, kind of starting to build those levels of trust between us and the, and the students, but also students and parents and teachers and, and getting everybody together uh, over or around the concept of growing in and eating healthy food. And then the uh, Kellen, well, it doesn't have to be Kellen, it's so any cooking classes are incredibly helpful to put into those communities because a lot of times if you give somebody a whole bunch of vegetables, they may be like, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, I don't know how to turn this into something that my child is going to want to eat. So combining the, the education in the schools where you're getting kids excited about trying the vegetables that they grow and being food detectives and all the stuff that we do with the games and everything, but then having them learn along with their families how to cook it. And then providing the access, which is the Eat Real Food mobile market. So it doesn't have to be the Eat Real Food mobile market, but bringing in mobile markets or the other piece of what we do is working with local corner stores. And we act as a wholesale provider of produce to these local corner stores so that they can get fresh fruits and vegetables in small quantities. That's one of the biggest problems for our corner stores. They don't have a whole lot of uh, cooler space and they can't get good pricing like the wholesale pricing on the produce because they only need a little bit at a time. Like they might only want five pounds of apples and 10 pounds of potatoes and maybe like 20 onions at a time. And if you're doing that, you can't get uh, the wholesale decrease or the, the better pricing from the big food distributors because they might want you to get a pallet of onions or something. And they'd be like, I don't know what to do with this. So food access by either the mobile market or preferably mobile market and corner store, because the corner stores are there all the time, you know, 24 seven. And then adding into it on top of that, the intensive behavioral lifestyle change programs for people that are already having issues with chronic disease. So 
when you do all of that, what you're doing is taking a neighborhood and helping people not only learn about education wise, why it's important to make these changes with exercise and food and sleep and stress reduction and everything, but also give them concrete steps of how they can do it. You know, they can come to the mobile market, they can be a part of the school gardens, they can come to these cooking classes. Now to make this work across the country, there has to be some way to fund it. And that's the hardest part. Like everything that we do with Helen Foundation is either through our own fundraising efforts or through corporate sponsorships or uh, grants, uh, philanthropic organizations, because there's, or as you know, some things, and sometimes people will pay for maybe a certain amount of the cooking class, or we do also have lifestyle medicine meals, which is a prepared food service. So that's kind of like once people can come and actually pick up healthy food, like uh, power bowls and salads and, um, Healthy, healthy bread, things like that. So that is some way that we generate a little bit of income, but we really can't cover our costs because we're not asking the schools to pay any money towards this. And um, we're not asking uh, the communities to pay for the fact that the mobile market is there. And it's definitely one of those things that is, is not able to operationally make enough income to cover it. So we would have to think across the country what is, if we think that this is of public good and that it will help our communities be healthier, which will save us money in the long term, how do we fund the workforce to do it? Because these aren't things that you can do online with a website that is like some sort of, you know, virtual, uh, not a person. Like these are things that you need people to interact with people to do together. So if you just send somebody to be like, oh, hey, watch this video. Like it's not the same as having people there in their neighborhood every week or in their, in their kids' school. So this is like a shift in a, I don't want to say backwards direction because it's not backwards, but it's like get, we've spent so much time in this country focusing on technology and removing people from the equation for so many things. That doesn't work for helping people live healthier lifestyles and changing their habits. You actually need people to be interacting with people. And to have that, that means people need to be able to have a way to make a living doing that. So I would say we'd need to advocate for the either public funding of it or a way for it to be reimbursable through healthcare dollars or something like that so that staff can, that are, because there are so many young people that are going into public health or going into health related fields that are passionate about this and want to do this type of work but it's hard to find jobs in this type of work because there's not a whole lot of funding opportunities currently. But if we could put stuff like this across the country, we would absolutely decrease our healthcare costs as a country and we would um, improve our, our chronic disease states too. So Dr. Gregor, one thing you mentioned was like, um, you said the healthy neighborhood strategy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting in terms of, in terms of uh, thinking and looking about food insecurity. So I'm curious, how does food insecurity look like for you in your state? Because for here in Florida, I, at least from my understanding, one of the biggest things that we deal with is food deserts. Like there'll be mm -hmm. places in the country where there's, you know, many grocery stores in one area, but then in other places, you know, in the same city, there's absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So we here in the Lehigh Valley have eight areas that are designated um, as food deserts. And for us, that means because we are uh, not as, there are rural areas as well, but the ones that I'm talking about, the, the eight in particular, are considered both low food access and low income. So that's kind of the, the double whammy <laughs> that we have. Um, and for places like that, yes, there are not grocery stores within a mile. So if you don't have, if you don't have a car, if you have to use public transportation, it's difficult. But luckily, there are usually corner stores in most areas of the country that have food deserts, not necessarily rural areas, because rural areas is a different definition of food desert. It has to do with if you don't have transportation and, it, and there may not be those sort of neighborhood corner stores. But in the more densely populated places, there usually are. So it is a feasible strategy to bring something like a mobile market into those neighborhoods and park. Like for example, we park on school property quite a bit. So we're right where people are anyway. We also go to senior centers and senior homes. So there's a lot of people living there and they can come down and, and do their shopping. 
Uh, we also go to places of worship or places like community centers for kids. So we, we try to take the market to places where there's already a bunch of people going to be there anyway to make it as convenient for them as possible. Same thing uh, with the corner stores is that corner stores are usually in these areas that are relatively convenient for people to walk to. So by providing food on the mobile market and to the corner stores, you can not completely eliminate a food desert, but you can definitely make it a lot, um, a lot better by having produce available. And hopefully if we also increase the demand for produce in those areas, like people, people are showing that they're willing to purchase it, that that will change the, the calculus for, for the food, or I'm sorry, the corner stores to say like, Hey, maybe we should be shifting over and having more of our space available for the fresh food, not just the necessarily like the beef jerky and the chips and the soda, but maybe if people are buying it, it's just a business decision for them. You know, if people are buying it, they'll stock it. So if we can get people to be realizing that it's there and is regularly available, we should be able to help change some of that. Now in rural areas, it's harder because people are spread out more. And sometimes strategies for that would be, okay, for if there's a place that people come to frequently, so places of worship are a great example, schools are still a great example for there, that try to focus your efforts of bringing food to those places where people are anyway, because if you're gonna try and take a market someplace, like you wouldn't be able to drive all the way around the county to get to all of the places. So I would, in a rural area that has a food desert, I would look at where do people gather and then try to put the resources into those places in um, cities and more densely populated areas, there's lots of places around that you'll see that people gather, schools being one of the, the big ones. Yeah, so that, may, that brings up a good point. And it sounds like you guys didn't have too much trouble having the ability to provide these services on these school grounds, but is that correct? Yes, but I, I think the reason is because we were already in the elementary schools for so many years before we launched the mobile market. So we had already created this strong relationship with the school community. And then when we said, hey, we would like to add this as a piece of what we do, they were very supportive, which was awesome because it's great to be able to have that, that access to be right there when the kids get out of school and the parents are coming to pick them up so that it's, it's a um, convenient, accessible, and it also shows the school's kind of commitment to healthy lifestyles. So it was like a win-win for everybody. Yeah, because if I recall correctly, um, Gain the University of Florida is located in Gainesville and the Alach in Alachua County. And from what I remember, a lot of organizations and companies that want to go into these elementary schools, which are located in low mm -hmm. socioeconomic um, areas, you know, kind of a similar concept as to the populations that you're serving, it's just, they have a lot of trouble getting into these schools to provide mm -hmm. the service. Um, so that brings up this next question, like what, what are the barriers that you have to deal with to provide these services, like from a legality kind of point of view? And then what do you think other people that may be interested in providing services like so should look to do in order to cross those barriers? Mm -hmm. So one of the key things about working in the schools is consistency and commitment to being there reliably. And this is one of the things that schools often get very frustrated about is that uh, an organization or somebody will have like a grant and they'll say, oh, I want to come in and do this, but then the grant money runs out and then they don't do anything for a while and then they have have another cool idea and they want to come in and, and do things with the schools again. And, and it's schools have so many regulations and so many like uh, standardized testing and things that they have to get uh, done every year that we, now we were, we were fortunate. And this is something that's great with, uh, for you guys, as far as going into medicine, the way we initially got into the schools was that I am the doctor on the, on the Eastern area school district wellness committee. And my partner grew up in Bethlehem and, and we've been on the Bethlehem area wellness committee for a long time. So we were already kind of serving the school district in a different capacity. So they knew us. And then when we said, Hey, we would really like to come in and teach the kids and it's not going to cost any money. And, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, they were willing to give it a shot. And then once we started doing it, it's so important that you make it easy for the schools 
to allow, to have you come in. So what I mean by that is you don't let the, you don't call the school and be like, Hey, I can come in on Thursday at two o'clock. You talk to the schools and say, when will it work for you? I'll bring enough people so that they're able to um, work it into their schedule and be convenient for them because they usually have very strict timing of, well, this is when these kids go to gym and this is when these kids go to lunch and this is when reading is and they can't move those things around. So you have to be very flexible and work with what they have available. And then once you're scheduled, you have to make sure that you come and, and do what you said that you were going to do. So often uh, many organizations rely on volunteers, which is awesome because volunteers are fabulous, but volunteers also sometimes are like, oh, you know, my grandchild just had a, or my, my daughter just had a baby. So I want to go see my grandchild or, you know, other things happen. And so they end up kind of uh, canceling on the last minute. And that's something that is very frustrating to schools if they kind of set the time aside for you and then you're not able to come do what you said you were going to do. And now you're saying, oh, can I have a different time to come, you know, and that sort of thing. And then the consistency of staying year after year after year and becoming a part of the, the fabric of the community, like you're consistently there so that the teachers can start to count on you. They know what your curriculum is going to be. They're able to work it into some of their lesson plans, you know, and work it into, oh, and the other key thing is you make sure that your curriculum fulfills some of the state educational testing standards. So like for us, for our third grade eat real food, that goes into the science curriculum because it's talking about the body and it's talking about nutrition and it's talking about uh, growing food and plants. And so that fits into certain requirements for the Pennsylvania State curriculum. For fourth grade, we're doing healthy choices and label reading. And that has to do with how many grams of fat and how many grams of sugar and what percentage of calories from sugar and how do you read a nutrition label? Well, that goes into the math standards. So we're already doing something that the schools would be interested in or need to teach the kids. And then in fifth grade, our eating out survival skills, which is all about going out to different restaurants and how do you be a food detective, that goes into the health curriculum. So it helps to tie your, your programming into things that the schools already know that they need to do. And uh, the garden as a classroom, school gardens can be into science, it can be into, like you can put it into all sorts of different things. So I think the, the, the key pieces are make relationships with your schools that are long-term. So it's not the first time that you talk to a principal or somebody is to say like, hey, I have this idea, I wanna come in and do this. It's more that you are, have maybe volunteered there already, they've gotten to know you, or you have a connection through somebody that you know that's already working in the school so that they can kind of vouch for you or you know, like say that this is a great person. Um, if you don't have that, then at least talking to the principal and saying, I have this great idea, would this work for you or do you have other suggestions like, you know, asking them how your idea can fit into their, their um, plans for the school year. Finances is always going to be an issue because schools usually don't have the money to pay for things like this. So that's one of the first things that principals usually ask or superintendents usually ask is, okay, is this going to cost us any money? So being able to say like, no, we have funding or we have availability for other things is good. Talking to the PTAs is good so that more parents get to know you and know what you're trying to do. And then once you start to be able to be in the schools, being consistent and reliable and making sure that the staff that you bring with you or the volunteers that you bring with you are um, polite. That, that's a mm -hmm. good point you make. And it was really interesting because you, you constantly are mentioning relationships and that is actually the um, main themes that we also had in our health disparities course was that in order to do, to make, create any change within these populations or to, to change, I guess, these habits, the relationships is number one. And mm -hmm. that's kind of another, pro going back to the healthcare system, you mentioned the 15 minute meetings you have with patients, that is not enough time to create the kind of relationships that you need to create real long lasting change. Mm -hmm. And also we're getting to the point now where so many, instead of like one or two docs in an office or something that there's these big uh, uh, practices and health networks so that you may not even see the same doctor time after time. It's like you may come in once and see a nurse practitioner and then come in a different time and see a physician. And then the next time that physician is not available. So now you see a physician assistant and like, so you're not really making a relationship with one person. 
Now, not all, not all healthcare is like this. There are still some smaller practices, but the consolidation that has been happening in healthcare has made it so that very few people, at least here in the Northeast, feel like they've got their doctor. Like they have a practice that they go to and there's multiple doctors or physician assistants or nurse practitioners there, but not that relationship thing that we're talking about. And I think relationships, not just out in the communities, but in healthcare, that is the key to healing. That is the key to change. And for people feeling comfortable enough to talk to you about the things that uh, you kind of need as your, as your clues about what's going on with them. One of the things that Lisa, you know, that we've heard from the other uh, graduate students who are on their way to becoming doctors, um, when they do uh, kind of like the practice sessions with the patients, they are only 15 minutes. So, you know, what kind of recommendation can you give to future healthcare professionals to build a relationship? You know, is it something that we have to, it's going to, you know, 15 minutes is simply just not enough time or uh, can we improve our ways of communication? Well, one of the important things is to actually look at the patient and talk to the patient and not be staring at your screen and your electronic medical record the whole time and clicking boxes and things. So even though it makes it challenging, because how do you get all of your charting done if you're not doing all your boxes and everything, but to spend at least a couple of minutes like sitting and actually looking at the patient, talking to the patient. I mean, I would love to be able to do it much longer. And I think that we do need longer visits, but even if you don't have a longer visit, spending that time that you're showing the patient that you are focused on them, not on the chart, is a really helpful thing. And I think we just basically have to break stuff down into smaller chunks and have people come back more frequently because how else can you do it in 15 minutes? So one of the things I like to do is after getting to know, and luckily usually your initial visit with somebody is longer than 15 minutes. So uh, if they're new to your practice or something. So once you start to get to know people, then you can say, hey, I'm going to give you like some homework to do before I see you again, whether that's a video that you want them to watch about exercise or whole food plant-based nutrition or Dr. Greger's uh, nutritionfacts.org is one of my favorite ones that I pick different little videos from and give patients or, or I ask them to watch a movie like Game Changers, like the Game Changers, which is on Netflix now, which is awesome or something like forks over knives, or I ask them to read a book, or I like I ask them, to, or even I just ask them to journal themselves, like what, how many, just journal how many fruits and vegetables you're eating a day, so that when you come in the next time we can talk about it. But like giving people homework is one of the only ways that I know to get all the, to try to get the educational piece going when we have such a short visit, and then having them come back more frequently. So instead of saying like, oh, I'll see you in three months, Maybe it's like, okay, I'm giving you this homework and I want to see you in four weeks and then we'll have another visit then. I don't know if you want to answer this question a little differently. It was a very similar question, but kind of closing out here because we want to really respect your time is what kind of message do you want to, would you like to give students aspiring to become health professionals? Oh, that's a great one. Well, I would say that you have more power than you realize and that the system that you're going into at this point is not serving patients well, it's not serving doctors well, and it's really not serving our country well from a financial standpoint. And so it's time for us to change it. And you guys are, are gonna be like the, the, um, the instigators or the, the people that are like agitating for changing it. So the way I feel like we need to change it is we've kind of talked about some of those, those issues already, but to kind of sum them all up together is we need to change our payment model so that it is actually, a, people can actually make money by keeping people healthy. Our current system of fee for service and more of a capitalistic view of the way our healthcare insurance is, and it, that's not going to work that way. So we have to change our system and how we pay providers for what they do so that it's not a encounter based way of looking at it, but more of a population-based or over a long-term time sort of way of looking at it. And then that frees clinicians up for lots of innovative new ways to do things, group visits, doing cooking classes in your office, doing walk with a doc where you walk with your patients, like ways that you could actually be getting reimbursed as a practice so that you can keep your staff and keep your lights on and you know have your job, but that you are doing it in a different way. So I feel like there's a lot of pressure in our current system 
to go more and more and more technology, like more complicated electronic health records, more uh, quick visits, and more uh, having it that people that are, are advanced practitioners, but not physicians, like, oh, let them do that work, but yet like not really giving anybody enough time to, to make those relationships with patients. And so we're spending a lot of money on technology. And some things are helpful. Like I, I feel like these patient portals that patients are able to actually interact with their doctors, not necessarily at a, at a visit, that's cool. So that makes it very convenient but then that should get reimbursed. Like, and I think telehealth may be starting to move in that direction. So it'll be interesting to see how that all works out. But what I would like us to, as a system, and for you guys as the doctors of the future, is to not lose sight of the amazing therapeutic power of the relationship between the healer and the patient. And if we go completely to all these like virtual based, uh, almost like cookbook, you check this off, you check this off. It's like Dr. Google, you know, like those sorts of things. That is not going to be good for patients. It's also not going to be good for doctors. So we have to advocate for time and we have to advocate for people. So like that we still have people interacting with patients and that we have the time to interact. When I went to Penn, uh, there was a, a doctor there. His name was Dr. Danan, and he is, uh, was one of those like just amazing uh, people that was like a, a, who would say like a god of medicine, you know, he's one of those people who had been at Penn and had done just these amazing things. He used to teach some um, diagnostic courses for the med students, and he had, so he just always had these little pithy sayings that he would say, and we called them Danan's dictums, and we would write them down, like whenever he would say something that was, was very uh, kind of like like noteworthy. And one of the things that he said is he said, when I am dying, I don't want my hand to be held by a computer. And I thought that is a really good point. You know, like, yes, computers can do amazing things, but we can't let go of that. We should not lose sight of the power of that personal relationship or that, that interaction between people. And so I hope that your generation can push back against the over technology of medicine. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing all these cool things with like gene therapy and, and um, you know, smaller laparoscopic procedures and robotic assisted surgery, like all that stuff is really cool, but we should still allow the time for patients to have a relationship with their provider. And we should make it so that you guys don't have to click so many boxes, because I think that's really doing a bunch of um, like the electronic health records and the pace at which people doctors have to see patients is contributing to burnout on a scale that has never been seen before. And so that needs to be switched around. Yeah. So I was actually going to ask you um, if there's one thing you could change, what would it be? But you, you, you answered that for me. So you yeah. Oh, so, I do want to say one more thing though, that what okay, you okay. really need as a doctor and what you really need for the future of medicine is to find your ikigai. And ikigai is an Okinawan phrase that means what's your passion? Why do you get up in the morning? Like what gives you your spark and your fire? And you, you need to find that either in the way that you're interacting with your patients or if there's research or if there's like a community thing. It doesn't even necessarily have to be in medicine, but you need an ikigai to keep you, like keep that spark, keep that passion and that energy going. Because Medicine is, is hard. I mean, we know that it's hard. It's exhausting. It's, it's uh, painfully sad sometimes. Other times it's really wonderful, but it's, it's a lot. It takes a big toll on people. But if you have an ikigai, that really helps kind of, kind of buoy you back up. So Kellen is my ikigai. And I work harder now than I did back when I was uh, seeing 30 patients a day in my primary care clinic. I, I definitely am working harder and longer hours but I don't feel burnout. I don't feel exhausted. Like I'm passionate and excited about the stuff that, that I do. So it's important for, for all of you guys as you're going into, into your future is what makes you so passionate and excited that you would do it even if you didn't get paid and try to make sure that there's space in your life for that. It's not the only thing you're going to do because you got to do other stuff to make your life work, but make sure there's at least a piece of what you do, whether it's professional or just personal that you love it so much you would do it no matter what. And that helps keep you from the burnout. Yeah, I love that. You know, um, just love what you do and never work, a, never work a day in your life. 
Exactly. <laughs> so I, I also, when you emailed, um, when we first were emailing to start up this po- this podcast, you said a great quote, which I just want to I just want to mention right now for the listeners, which I loved it. It was um, by Albert Einstein: "Is we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them." And you have provided a lot of different ideas and applicable concepts that we can start to apply people listening to this that can start inspiring them planting that seed in their head which actually ian kramer is the person the the podcast that i heard you from first from he mentions that a lot planting that seed which i think you do very well but thank you so much for your time dr gregor thank you so much i feel like i've i've learned so much about you know the importance of lifestyle medicine and how it really is, it's all about relationship. And, you know, I'm glad that we are, you know, we're able to make this podcast about building, you know, these hips of relationships. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I am so glad we had a chance to talk to both of you guys. And I hope that uh, when you, when you share the podcast that a lot of your friends and colleagues and everybody listens to it, because I really do believe that you guys are the future that is going to change medicine to be better for all of us. And I am honored to be a part of getting a chance to talk to you guys. So I hope you go out there, do all sorts of good healthy neighborhood immersion stuff with people and that you find your icky guy as you keep going forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank you you guys so much for listening to our first podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. Dr. Gregor had a lot of great things to say and a lot of amazing information that she provided. We just really hope that you can find a way to take this information and to apply it into your lifestyle and in your future career or your current career. And I hope it inspires you to uh, look at your communities and see how you can how you can be involved. Because as we learn, you know, medicine doesn't always have to be in the office. It's about building relationship and, and a community.